Please turn with me in Scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 7. Revelation, chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. The tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation, and washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall... Neither hunger any more, nor thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb, who is in the midst of the throne, will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We come now to Revelation chapter 7, to the sealing of the 144,000. Now you probably know that this has been the subject of much controversy in the relatively recent history of the church who are these 144,000 and some imagine that this is the actual number of those who will be saved or at least those who will be spared from the great tribulation and that we should seek to earn a place as part of that number that there are certain things you need to do in order to earn that place now we're going to talk about that issue but I think in a larger scope of things, you may remember that one of my aspirations at the outset of this series on Revelation is that we should not get too hung up on the superficial aspects of the, the language in Revelation, which is very often typological. 
it's very real, it's very true, but often it's typological and pointing us to spiritual realities. And we shouldn't be kept from the main things because of it. Because the main thing is what we had in Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Revelation of Jesus Christ. Things which must shortly take place. That's the content of Revelation. Those are the things that we should care about. The things which must shortly take place. And we really need to understand these things that must take place. That was the problem the disciples had, you remember. That after his resurrection, they, were, they, they simply did not get it at all. They weren't expecting him to rise from the dead. They weren't waiting there. But, uh, just in, in faith, understanding the things that he said. And what he says in Luke 24, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? have to rebuke them foolish ones it's because he told him on, on several occasions Jesus had told his disciples that he had to suffer things like Matthew sixteen twenty one. from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day those things are necessary he must suffer he must die he must raise, be risen again the third day must happen and so Jesus had to rebuke them it was foolish of them not to believe or to comprehend these things that must take place we would certainly not want to do that would we we would want to understand the things that must take place the things that Christ has gone to the trouble of explaining to us so that there wouldn't be a mistake we'd know them we wouldn't be taken aback when they happen and the things that must take place are these we must suffer because the world persecutes us but that also God's people must be sealed and then God will judge the world and Christ and his people will reign these things must happen there's no possibility that they won't now mention this first necessary element already that we will suffer the, the, the souls of the martyrs that we had in chapter 6 are sort of proof positive of that. Living proof of the world's persecution. And we mentioned that they really stand for us all. We may not all be called to actually lay down our life physically, but we're all called in various ways to suffer, just as Christ did. And because of those things, the martyrs cry out, How long, O Lord? How long are you going to allow these things to carry on and the world is not going to be judged? And we said, well, the answer is not long. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. We don't need to think that at all. And that if we're considering the idea, the possibility that this world would just carry on forever and will never really come to that completion of our salvation and that those who have been persecuting the church will never be brought to justice, well, we shouldn't think that way soon enough but on the other hand there is another necessary element here and that is that God's people must be sealed you see the destruction is not yet yes it's coming soon but it's not yet and the reason why it's not yet is because God's people must be sealed they must be brought to saving faith they must be given the gift of the Holy Spirit and nothing's going to change that. 
Why is the Lord waiting so long? Why has he not already executed vengeance on the earth and brought history to a close? Because we're not the only ones that he's going to save. And that's part of the answers and the implicit answer given to those martyrs. You're not the only ones. We've got a few more of your brethren. That number has not yet been complete. And so you must be patient for the final end, for the complete redemption. And so we must be patient because we're not the only ones. This morning I can stand before you with absolute confidence and tell you that there is at least one other person in this world that yet must be saved. Why? Because the world is still here. The end is not yet. There are some others that must be sealed. And in fact, the forces that are already set up to destroy the earth. Please do not think that the Lord is, is slack or doesn't think about it. He already has provision in place for the destruction of this universe as we know it. But that is being held in check. That is being held back in order that Christ might seal his people. Well, we'll speak about these things, but I just want to introduce one theme that we haven't spoken of yet, but we're going to be speaking of it later on, and I want to just mention it so you think about it now. And that is the idea of these two peoples. In, in, Revelation is a story about many things, but in some ways you can boil it down to the story of two peoples. A story that's been going on from the very beginning, isn't it? The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of, of Satan and the seed of Christ. And in, here in Revelation, it's all about these people being identified and marked out along those ways. The question is whether you have the mark of the beast, because every last person who has a mark of the beast is condemned in the end to hell. And every last person that is marked by the, the mark that God gives is saved, brought into the new heavens and the new earth. So I just want to mention in this idea of these two people, both of whom receive some sort of mark that indicates their identity. Well, the main point of this sermon, though, is that all God's people must be sealed. And that's the title. All of God's people must be sealed. And we cover it under these three points. Destruction is being held back. Two, the seal of the Spirit. And three, the completeness of the church. Destruction is being held back, the seal of the Spirit, and the completeness of the church. So on the first point, destruction is being held back. We see that in the first verses. After these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. He cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So what is this pointing out? Well, first of all, these four angels. Just to reiterate what we learned a few weeks ago, the agents of destruction, these destroying angels, any other way we could possibly think of it, they're not rebels, they're not freelancing, they're certainly not under the authority of Satan, that's, that's not it. Um, these angels are under the power of God, and we know that because they take orders, don't they? They're told to hold back, and they do it. 
because they are servants of God. They do his bidding. So if you ever thought, you ever have some idea in your mind that Satan has the power, he's going to be the instrument of the destruction of this world, just get rid of that thought. He doesn't have that kind of power. He can do a lot of harm, a lot of mischief, but he cannot do that. The destruction of this world is in the hands of the one who created it, and that's God alone. So these four angels then, they have, they already hold in their hands these four winds, which are pictured as bringing destructive power on the earth. And they're being held back. I want us to see that God is not being lax. You see, that's, of course, the part of the question. We know that the, the martyrs in heaven, they're not sinning. They couldn't sin. We cannot sin any longer from heaven. We're perfected in that way. But they're asking a question, and the question doesn't imply the whole picture. The question was, how long, O Lord? We're, we have in mind your justice. Your justice would seem to entail that you're going to judge those who have persecuted us. You, you're going to judge those who have put us to death. You're going to judge those who have blasphemed your name on this earth. It seems like you should do that. Well, they're not wrong about it. And so God makes it clear, don't worry, it's going to happen soon enough. But there's another aspect of God that ought to be kept in mind as well, which is the great mercy and grace of God. Because this destruction is being held back for just that purpose. He's not being lax. He's not, he's not let his standards lapse. He's not forgotten about the wicked. And we need to remember that the destruction of this world has already been set in place. It's, it's already there. Just imagine. Now, I understand there's an element of, again, that typological language in these four uh, angels representing the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, west. But the idea is that these things are, are ready to go. There's nothing that, it's not that, that Christ has to, at some point in the future, spend a couple hundred years setting up some sort of mechanism to destroy the earth. Not only has he already set it up, it's ready to go and it's being actively held back for a little while longer. And that's important for us to know. None of this is visible. The outward appearance of the world is, is as it would be as if destruction was the furthest thing from God's mind. Judgment hadn't even entered his mind. And at least physically speaking, things would be the same. But you see the difference once you see that. Once the curtain has been pulled back and we see, oh, there are the angels. They've got the destruction of this world in their hand and their hands are being held back by God just for a little bit. Do you see the difference? That, that might make it brings us to a little bit different mindset if we like the martyrs are worried about God's reputation that people are sinning and blaspheming with great boldness and getting away with it and God hasn't done anything about it we don't need to worry about that anymore we say yes we see we see the justice of God and if we're worried of course that maybe the church won't be complete maybe Someone will be missing. We don't need to. God has them. Has everything under control, doesn't he? We need, of course, by the way, if we're complacent sinners, if we're those who don't give any thought to God, if you haven't put your faith in Christ, if you're carrying on and as if he didn't exist, then you ought to be warned. You've been given that little bit of glimpse, haven't you? 
Sometimes we think that the world is just going to go on forever and ever, that we ourselves are going to go on forever and ever and will never be held to account. Well, please don't think that. Please don't think that at all. Destruction is being held back. And it's for the purpose that none of God's people be lost. I think that's, by the way, what we see in 2 Peter 3.9. Sometimes the verse is mentioned, and it's mentioned a little bit out of context, but let me read it. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the context here is the end of the world. And what the Lord is reminding us of, don't think that the Lord is being slack with regard to Judgment Day. He's not. He is not willing that any, any of his people, any of those that he has ordained to salvation would be missing. He's not willing to let that happen. These people must be saved and nothing can keep that from happening. Destruction is being held back. It's being kept on hold a little while longer because the priority, the thing that must happen is that God's people must be saved. Well, secondly, let's think about the seal. We saw in these same verses and so in verse 2, I saw another angel ascending from the east having the seal of the living God. And also in verse 3, it speaks of till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I suppose the first question is, who is this other, other angel? He has the seal of the, the living God. And it's not in the sense of having it on his forehead as if he has been sealed. But I think the picture of, is he has the seal. He has the instrument of sealing in his hand. It's in, it's in his gift to come and to seal people. And you have to ask, what sort of angel is able to do that? Well, I think it's either Christ himself or else an angel that is acting very much as his direct representative. We know we've already seen that sometimes the Son of God is represented as the angel of the Lord. So it wouldn't be anything strange if he was mentioned as an angel. And in fact, even the fact that he says the servants of our God would not necessarily preclude that. Because you remember what he said, what Jesus said in John 20? It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? He said, John 20, verse 17, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father and to my God and your God. And that's not pointing at all to the idea that maybe Christ is subordinate uh, you know, in an ultimate way. Of course, he submits to the will of the Father, but he's not less than the Father. We've spoken of the doctrine of the Trinity before, but what we're talking about here is his wonderful condescension to being like us, to your Father and to my Father. My God and your God. Maybe that's what's going on here. I don't know. But what I do know is that the seal is the Holy Spirit. Of that, we can be most certain. The Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians one twenty two says, He also has sealed us and given us a spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. He's sealed us and given us a spirit. That's the spirit, or that's the seal you see that he has. He's got that in his gift. And once again, that makes us think, who has it? Well, we know that both the Father and the Son are able to send the Spirit. Christ has given, been given that authority to seal uh, God's people in that way. How does it work as a seal? 
Well, in a couple ways. It identifies us as gods to ourselves. Okay, so I'll just say these three things, A, B, and C. To ourselves, to, to the angels, and to God himself. These are the identifications that need to happen. It identifies us as belonging to God. We can see that ourselves. Uh, God's servants, the angels can see that. And that God himself can see that. So, A, to ourselves. And I think here the emphasis of this verse in Corinthians is on the guarantee that is given to us. He seals us in a way that we know it, so we can be sure in our own hearts that we're going to heaven. That's really important. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That's the element. The, the idea of a guarantee. You don't have everything yet, but you have the down payment. You may not have the great wealth and riches of heaven but you have a little bit of it. You don't enjoy perfect and unfettered, permanent fellowship with God, but you have some of it, don't you? Because you have the Holy Spirit, if you're Christ. You've been given this irrefutable guarantee to yourself, so you never have to be in doubt. I don't doubt that there are some who lack assurance sometimes, for various good reasons. But that is not necessary for God's people who have this Holy Spirit in order that they might have this guarantee. It's explained even more fully in Ephesians 1.13. In whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession, to praise of his glory. The guarantee of our inheritance. There's a purchased possession. You bought something to or something has been bought for you, actually, which is the new heavens and the new earth, and you're going to inherit it. But before that, you've been given this irrefutable seal of authenticity, this title deed of the Holy Spirit, so you may not doubt that it's yours. All this being sealed for the day of redemption. And B... The seal identifies us as being gods, as belonging to gods, to the angels. That's what we find here in, or around this in, um, in Revelation itself. You remember the question at the last verse of chapter 6. The great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? That's the question. Who is able to stand? Well, in some sense, chapter 7 is the answer to that. Who's able to stand? Well, it's those who have been sealed. The elect, God's people, are able to stand. And that's seen in the command given to other agents of destruction in Revelation 9.4 that we'll get to, Lord willing, in a few, few weeks. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. And you have this picture then of the angels or other things that God is using to bring this final destruction of the, the earth. And God makes sure that they don't touch his own servants. Now this is an element of, the, of redemption that is thorough throughout scripture. The picture here is very much, the idea of sealing God's servants in their foreheads is very much like what's in Ezekiel. And I'll just read from Ezekiel 9 Starting in verse 4. The Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. 
To the other he said in his my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Old and young, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is my mark. Do not come near anyone on whom is my mark. You see, so those angels are able to see this mark of the Holy Spirit and are kept from, from any harm. What does that look like? Well, the great archetype, the great picture of redemption that's given to us in the Passover, where the blood is on the doorpost. Don't go near those doorposts, this mark that is given, the blood of, of the Lamb, you see. Well, these are not just pictures. This is not just fanciful poetic language. This is pointing to something that is absolutely real that the angels are used by God both to bring his own people to redemption and to bring the unbelievers and the sinners to damnation. In the mini-apocalypse in Matthew 24, it says, He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds. See, they're going to gather. How do they know, by the way? How do they know who's the elect? They're going to gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. How do they know who are the elect and who aren't? They're not omniscient like the Lord himself. The answer is because of the seal. The seal of God's spirit. So the seal identifies us as being gods to ourselves, to the angels, and see to God himself. You know, people still put some kind of imprint or seal on their own things in order that they might recognize them. Not just so that other people can recognize them as genuinely coming from them, but so they can recognize it themselves. Passports, for instance. You know, there's lots of uh, increased security devices on passports, particularly American passports. But, you know, they're not terribly concerned about whether the Iranians can tell whether this American passport is genuine or not. That isn't at all a concern. They can't even read the encoded stuff on it. I hope they can't. They've got these chips now embedded in them. And there's other things that can be read under ultraviolet light and the rest of it. But we don't care about that. What's important is whether Americans themselves, manning the border, can recognize this as being as one of their own. That's the important thing. And so there's this mark. In order when the day comes and you want entry into that particular country that they can recognize, yes, this is one of our own. And you know that is the case with God himself. That's why it says in 2 Timothy 2.19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. Now we know, of course, that the Lord doesn't need anything external to people. He is omniscient and he is the one who chose us. He knows our names. He chose us from before the foundation of the world main thing, the thing that we should keep in mind is that this seal, above all other things, we're thankful for the assurance of salvation gives to us. That's a wonderful assurance. We are thankful that, to know that this, this seal guarantees that we will not be harmed when the end comes. The angels will know not to harm us. But above all, we're reminded that God himself knows us to be ours, to be his. And therefore, we are given entry into his everlasting kingdom. 
Well, thirdly and finally, I think we ought to think under this idea that God's people must be saved, must be sealed. The completeness of the church. As we read in verse 4, we see, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, as I mentioned, that number, 144,000, has caused quite a bit of consternation. And, you know, that number is composed of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And you start to wonder whether this number 12 means something. And I think, actually, it does. Now, by the way, this list here does not exactly match up with any list that we have in the Old Testament. Yes, there's 12, but it doesn't quite match up exactly. For instance, Dan is missing. We have Manasseh and Joseph, but not Ephraim. And if you were to go through every list in the Old Testament, you'd find that in one way or another, it doesn't quite match up. Why is that? And you know what else? If you were to go through the various lists or possibilities, the same thing could be said for the apostles. Did you know that? That whether you want to count Judas, Matthias, or Paul as the twelfth apostle, you have at least 13 different possibilities for the 12 apostles. Why? Well, not at all that God, that any part of God's word is the slightest bit inaccurate, but because what is being pointed to is the completeness of God's people. If anything, it's pointing to the imperfection of the people who comprise that, of the sinful tribes, one of which it's speculated that, for instance, Dan was cast out because of their extreme idolatry and therefore doesn't appear in the list anymore. Maybe that's true. We know that Judas was cast out because of his, his apostasy, right? So it's pointing to the fact that God's people themselves are nothing great, but we know this, the perfection. There will certainly be 12. There will certainly be that perfect number that God himself has in mind and none will be missing at all. And that's why when we see a picture, when the holy city, the new Jerusalem, is being measured, and we know that it's the bride of Christ, is comprised of all of God's people. How is it measured? It measures 12 by 12. In Revelation 21, there's a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And on the wall, the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Because it's comprised of this perfect number of all of God's people. And therefore, we need to remember that this city that is comprised not only of the 12 tribes, but of the 12 apostles, that we are the seed of Abraham. It's not restricted, you see, this number of God's people, this perfect number is not restricted to ethnic, national Israel. But that promise is extended to all who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are, spiritually speaking, that Israel. We are the seed of Abraham, as it says in Galatians 3.29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You can't gainsay that. If you are Christ, you are Abraham's seed. End of story. I don't deny that there's an element of still being national Israel. I'm not speaking of that at the moment. I'm speaking, though, of the number of God's people. I'm speaking of those spiritual Israel, the one to whom these promises ultimately go to, 
certainly includes Gentiles as well. The seed of Christ. Now, what's the relationship of the picture here? We'll speak about this maybe next week. But what's the relationship between the picture here and what happens afterwards? Because immediately after the sealing, this process of sealing, funny enough, the very next thing you come to is this great multitude of no, no one can number of all the tribes and tongues and nations of the earth. Well, I think the relationship is it's the very same people. These are the saved people of God. From one perspective, by the way, he heard the number. He didn't see them at this point. He heard the number, which was 12, 12 times 12 times 1,000, 144,000. And that's pointing to the fact that it's perfect. You see, if the Lord had only spoken of some innumerable number, you'd think, well, it's plus or minus. Maybe there's a few missing. Maybe there's a few added. We don't know. God doesn't, maybe God doesn't even keep track of them. Well, please don't think that. And therefore, we, we, I had to give you. I didn't skip them. I read them out. Those four verses full of this repetitive language, 12 times repeated, that they were sealed. Why? Because you need to know that it is absolutely precise, known to God, and not subject to any doubt of those number who are going to be saved. God knows them. God has set them apart, and God will certainly save them. On the other hand... That number is a little bit bigger than 144,000. Praise God. It is a great number that no one can number. No one can count looking at this great multitude of people. Well, we can be sure about the completeness of the church. That is a wonderful promise to us. No one will be missing. This world is not going to end five minutes too soon. Nobody's not going to miss the bus. We're all going to be there in the end. So then, how do we apply these things? Well, I said it last time. I'll probably say it again. But the first application is to repent. What does that do when we have that curtain pulled back and we see the four angels in the four corners of the earth with the power of destruction already been given? It's been given into their hands to harm the earth. And they're being held back for a little while longer. Well, maybe it's like a criminal and if there's no sign of any element of law enforcement around there's no CCTV there's no patrol vehicle maybe you feel emboldened a little bit to keep on doing what you're doing but what if you just happen to pass a prison and you see the instruments of justice already prepared for people just like you already in in motion as it were Maybe you'll think twice about doing and keeping on going what you're doing at the moment. Well, if we're seeing the spiritual reality as things that they really are, and these destroying angels that are being held in check, you understand they're not going to be held in check forever. You understand that there's nothing visible that's keeping them back. And that therefore, if you are outside of Christ and you're in rebellion against him, you haven't put your faith in Christ, then you ought to think about your ways. You ought to consider that you may not have. Sometimes we think about the, that the, the only thing is the length of our life. Well, I'm pretty assured of, of living another 20, 30 years. Well, we're not entirely ensured that this world will continue that long. We ought to repent. But if we have, we ought to have confidence 
If we are indeed God's people, if we have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to have confidence in continuing. No confidence in continuing on in sin and rebellion, but every confidence is God's people. We should have assurance. That's what this seal is for. It's been given so that we might know. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God in the context. The context is very much the assurance that we'll be saved and brought into to heaven. You did not receive, this is Romans 8, you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, of whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, indeed we suffer with him that we also may be glorified with him. You see, it's just like Revelation. You're going to have to suffer with him, but that's okay. Don't worry. Do like the man in Pilgrim's Progress did and look around and find, oh yes, I have this seal, I have this document. I have this evidence of the Holy Spirit in me. I don't need to worry. I can have assurance. I'm an heir of the living God. We might carry on in great confidence. That's, by the way, an element of our confession. We sometimes speak of things that are secondary. You know, well, that's not exactly an element of our faith. That's not a part of our our definition of our theology. Well, this one just happens to be. I don't know if you know it. But in the Confession of Faith, 18.2, this certainty, this assurance, is not bare conjectural. It's not just something you, you kind of put together this way or that way. A probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but is an infallible assurance of faith founded upon divine truth of the promises of salvation, the inward evidence of those graces on which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. Which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. It's a beautiful truth. It's not some sort of fallible hope. It's not some probable persuasion. It's a wonderful, real guarantee, and we should avail ourselves. We should not forget about it. We should understand this assurance and confidence we have through the Holy Spirit. Third, I think we ought to have confidence to evangelize. Um, Maybe some of you feel like very confident evangelists. I don't. But maybe that's okay. Uh, our confidence should not be in ourselves. Sometimes we, I think that the picture that we have of a really successful evangelist would be successful in any sort of sales, whether he's selling cars or shoes or whatnot, that he would be confident because he's in the flesh. Well, we can have maybe not confidence in that sort of thing, but we can have confidence to evangelize because of what we have learned in Revelation chapter 7. There are 144,000. There's a perfect, complete number. And you know what? They must be saved. They must be. Just as it was the case, you know, the problem with the disciples was that they did not understand, they did not believe those things that must be, the things that must take place. Jesus said, I must suffer. I must die. And the third day I must rise again. And he wants, it's almost as if he's shaking them and saying, did I not tell you? Why? There's an element, of course, in just the sinful unbelief that he's rebuking them for. But certainly also there's an element of what was good for them. Here they were in great anguish and uncertainty on that day. What has happened here? 
I can't believe it. They've taken the Lord. And he's suffering. And he died. We have no idea what's going to happen now. It's terrible. And it's silly, isn't it? They didn't have to go through that in the slightest. They could have had confidence in the things that he plainly revealed to them in order that they might know. Well, that's our situation. It's been plainly revealed to us what must happen. And you know what must happen? Every last one of God's chosen people, the ones marked out from the foundation of the earth, for whom Christ died, most certainly they will be saved. And that means we have confidence when you go forward to preach the gospel, to invite people to Christianity explored, invite them to church, to speak the truth to them in love because we know that there will be success. That doesn't mean that each and every time that we open our mouth, someone will come to saving faith. We can be sure, though, that God's people must be saved. And that's a wonderful confidence that we ought to have. It could never be the case that we've missed someone out. It could never be the case that we are prevented because of something that happened to us and we couldn't talk to our neighbor on the day we wanted to. We don't have to worry that those sorts of things that can't be helped are going to prevent someone from coming to saving faith. They come with great, or by the way, most importantly, that we're not as good a salesman as we'd like to be. We don't have to worry about that at all. Only thing we have to worry about is to be faithful and have great confidence that God is able to do it. Fourthly and finally and briefly, the things that are set before us. Do you know what we call a sacrament? Again, going back to the catechism. Sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ, wherein by sensible signs Christ and the benefits of the new covenant are represented, sealed, and applied to believers. It's a sign and it's a seal. And maybe you say, a lot of good this seal is because no one can see it. It's completely invisible. Well, we've already said it's of great use, even though it is invisible. It's of the greatest use. But every time that we come together as God's visible church, and every time as those who are in communicant membership come and partake of this table, the Lord's Supper, that sign is in some sense being made visible. The people, the, un, the unbelieving people are out there. They're not here. They're not coming to the Lord's table. They're not partaking together. We don't say that there's a 100% correlation between those who do and those who are saved. We know that it's imperfect. The visible church is not the same thing as the invisible church. What we are saying, though, is that there is a picture here a picture here of the reality of what is invisible inside us of God's people being saved and being nourished through Christ and so that we now turn